Hello, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at Under the Pyramids. This is, um, yeah, the last story I'll be looking at for, for quite a while. I got some big plans coming up for looking at the letters, looking at supernatural horror in literature, um, probably dig up some poems as well again. And um, so it's going to be a while until we get back to stories. Now, this is basically a Lovecraft story. I could have justified looking at it uh, before I started taking a look at these revisions or these collaborations. But it's, you know, it was published under Harry Houdini's name, um, Harry Houdini and the editor of Weird Tales. J.C. Henneberger both had a role in the in the creation of the story, if you will. Um, Houdini is the narrator of, of the tale, but it is 100% written by Lovecraft. So you can kind of take this purely as a Lovecraft story if, if you want, even if maybe you know some of the ideas were, were given to him. Um, in fact, I think this is a great story because it it's by making Houdini the narrator, it allows Lovecraft to kind of create a hero that's not typical in his stories. I don't think we see this type of narrator in any of the other stories written under his name. Um, it's it's not really the type of person he normally writes about. It's a celebrity, a famous person, a traveler, someone who um, has very different interests than his normal protagonists. Um, so that that I think it gives the story a, a little bit different feel, and I think it's a good thing because it, it creates a little more diversity. Um, that said, it, it does feel like a Lovecraft story in in many other ways. In fact, it's a lot like The Shunned House. You know how in the shunned house you saw like the elbow of the monster and that's about it and he defeats it here we see just like the toe of the monster and the climax of the story and the suggestion is that there's a much larger creature hidden under the surface now this story is although it's fiction it, it's presented as kind of a true adventure story in a way um it's basically the the plot of the story is harry houdini goes on a vacation to egypt he gets kidnapped, he gets buried under the pyramids, and he starts to dream, and he sees stuff while he dreams, and he's not sure if it's real or or not, but he, he seems to want to convince himself it's fake, it was just a dream, it didn't really happen to him, but anyways, he's relating what happens. So, kind of the first half of the story really does feel like this travelogue, kind of an adventure story and travelogue set in Egypt, which is a great place to kind of set uh, this type of um, travel story. In the 19th century, of course, late, especially the late, later 19th century, there's a lot of interest in Egypt as a source of tourism. And actually, Mark Twain is mentioned here. Mark Twain famously uh, visited Egypt during the tour that became the book Innocence Abroad. And he talks about some of the, just the, you know, what is, you know, being an American tourist abroad. It's a great book, by the way. Someday I'll probably look at it in my main podcast on American writers when I ever do uh, get the courage fortitude to to dig through mark twain's works that'll take quite a while when i decide to do that how long would that take 80 episodes or so if i really got into it we'll we'll see maybe i'll do it in different parts but anyways i like that that aspect of it right and it's it's not like a, a guy digs up something in a book and goes investigate it or something happens to him and he investigates it it's just stuff happens to this guy as he's on his his regular tourism trip right and the ambiguity put in the story i think is is a little bit different than some of his other tales where you do have a more concrete present present 
pre presentment of a cosmic horror or some kind of monster here you know whether it's a dream or not is left very very ambiguous at the end um but a lot of suspicious stuff uh on the margins of the story as well like some of the people he runs into so that that's easier to do in this kind of exotic locale of of, of egypt another thing i like about this story that something we we kind of feel very Lovecraftian about this story is the layers of history. I, I think that's a really wonderful aspect of the story. And I think that's what makes Egypt so captivating. You know, he didn't write that much about Egypt. This is the one major story we have, but in kind of the Lovecraft mythology that's built up, like the Cthulhu mythos, added on by other people, part of popular culture, you know, Egypt's key to it. You know, you have, you have kind of like that Egyptian aspect in Nalarapotep, the, the prose poem, where he's kind of from Egypt, but we actually are in Egypt in this story. We explore different locations. We go under the pyramids. And, you know, it's all great. You know, this is a time when a lot of people were interested in Egypt because they're starting to dig up these things. This is, I think the Sphinx was still being unearthed in the 1920s, or if not, maybe it was just finished being unearthed, you know, the unearthing of it. You know, if you ever see these old pictures of the, the Sphinx, you know, it was all covered in sand, right? It wasn't really unearthed until the until the early 20th century. At some point, I don't know if it had been done by this point yet or not, but you know, it's still a mystery for a lot of people, and it's still in a you know something that's being exposed to the world. There's a really funny line in the story, like where the character says, "Like, oh, if I had not read so much Egyptology, I you know I could have you know I wouldn't have had these strange visions or something." It's kind of funny because you can't. I don't imagine Houdini reading that much Egyptology. It seems like pretty dry stuff, but you know, there must've been a lot of popular Egyptology that came out at this time. You know, that, that just, you know, people would have read cause they're interested in this stuff and it's ancient. It goes really well, way, way back. And you got the pyramids and you have these emperors and this weird religion that didn't seem to have too many connections to even Greek religion. It just seems so different and exotic, but tied to the West tied to Western history and in, in intimate ways, a really great location to, 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 for Lovecraft to have a story. And, you know, the fact that it was sort of given to him as a project, I don't think takes away from how great the tale really is. Now, as the story opens, we, we we're kind of introduced to the narrator who is Houdini here. And we get this kind of juxtaposition between like the magic, the occult, um, and and science and reality and this is this is of course something Houdini and, and since him many other magicians have taken seriously you know because magicians they have their tricks they have their methods you know they they admit that they are they're illusionists they're not real magicians they're not really performing magic but then of course there are a bunch of people out there who use similar tricks to defraud people to scam people to you know whatever the psychic hoax or whatever you know, or claim to have some kind of magic to extort money from people. And magicians, including Houdini, were part of the fight against that kind of hucksterism of it. And he wrote books about this sort of thing. So he was part of that battle. And I think that also makes kind of an interesting element of the story in that he is, he was a rationalist. He was a, a scientist, someone who, who kind of looked at the world that way and, and was involved in the debunking. So anyways, um, the first part of the story is set up as a, Essentially a travelogue, a pretty standard travelogue where we see Houdini getting an interest in Egyptology and then finally deciding uh, to go to Egypt uh, as part of a tour. I think he's going to Australia 
something. So he's going to do stop off on Egypt on his way and, and see the sights. So he's part of like a whole group of tourists who go there. Um, and we get the description. There's a lot here. There's a lot of just descriptions of the sites. And, you know, I don't think, you know, Lovecraft mostly got this from pictures or from other travelogues he read. But a lot of it, it seems really, really drawn from life. It's really, really convincing. The amount of detail we have just of the different sites and of the travels and the different neighborhoods. And there's a lot of contrast between kind of the modern world and then like the, and then we get to kind of the traditional areas and a nightlife there built around tradition. And the question I think we need to ask is, you know, to, like travel tourism, it involves this element of mystery. Right. But tourism itself is a very, very modern phenomenon. Right. It doesn't exist really in pre pre-modern times. I mean, I guess there were travelers, but not tourism in the way we have mass tourism. So when a country wants to promote tourism, they often try to promote like a traditional way of life, but they do so in a way that's like a faux tradition, right? So you kind of have your traditional market for the tourists to enjoy and to experience, but that itself is a modern phenomenon. It's not a true representation of the past, but Egypt allows, the location of Egypt allows Lovecraft here to kind of peel beyond that, peel beyond that kind of fake tradition, like the scenes, the, 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 the street life, the, the kind of the music, the sounds, the smells of, of what's supposed to be kind of quote unquote a traditional Egypt, and then get to the real ancient past, which of course for Lovecraft is going to be primordial and much, much deeper than we ever, than you ever thought. Right. So, um, yeah, great stuff. Uh, to, to get a bit of this, um, he talks about being in the modern Cairo, right? See, at the hotel and the taxis and quote, the quote-unquote Amer Anglo-American luxuries. But, quote, the next day, however, precipi um, precipitated us delightfully into the heart of the Arabian Nights atmosphere and into the winding ways and exotic skylines of Cairo, the Baghdad of Harun al-Rashid seemed to live again. Guided by our Bedeker, we had struck east past the... Um, Azbekian gardens along the Mozaki in quest of the native quarter and were soon in the hands of the clamorous Cicerone who notwithstanding later developments was assuredly a master at his trade. Um, so, you know, I get the sense this is sort of a faux tradition that created for the tourist's benefit, but our narrator here seems to find it kind of a captivating place to explore or almost a time, like time travel as part of the tourist experience, I think, is, is being lived out here. So we're interested to the guy here. His name is Abdul. Where's his full name? Here's Abdul Reis El Drogman. And he's it, right away it said he's looked like a pharaoh, right? And if you know kind of the, the history of Egypt, you have, um, you know, of course it was conquered by various groups and most recently by the Arabs, right? And different populations have kind of moved through. And this has made one of the interesting historical conversations about Egypt, you know, the one kind of promoted by the Afrocentrists, kind of one about ethnicity and race to some degree, right? Because what the Afrocentrists say is Africa needs to be kind of studied historically as a continent and and not just as sub-Saharan Africa. And, and North Africa really can't just be seen as part of the West or part of the Arab world. That's, right? So reclaiming Egypt has been key to the Afrocentrist argument. And there's a lot of good arguments for that in that you had like this, like the Nile, the Nile River was 
a coherent river for trade and commerce and interconnectedness. Some of it is kind of silly where they try to say, oh, the Sphinx looks like it's got sub-Saharan African features or this picture does. You know, that's kind of imposing concepts of race that probably didn't exist at the time and and kind of reducing sub-Saharan African culture to to physical features. But the, you know, the, you know, what an ancient Egyptian would look like, you know, I guess that's that's somewhat an interesting question, you know, and, and, you know, it's, I don't know if it's that important at the end, but what does it mean to look like a pharaoh, right? He's comparing them to like some ancient pictures he saw, right? Or a, or a sarcophagus. I mean, my image of like a pharaoh is like, a, a burial mask or something that, that was like made on you know that the mummy was in so i mean i've seen those i've seen kind of the mummy casks at, at museums that's kind of my image of what a pharaoh might look like but you know this guy looks like a pharaoh which is kind of it's a clue later on because his loyalty his role in all this is really confusing right if it's a dream it's not that evil it's just he was part of a gang that kidnaps this guy if he's if he really if he really is connected to this deeper kind of cult or this tradition that's alive apparently under the pyramids it's a little bit more insidious so it's a nice i mean i think it's necessary for the story but it also for me it brings up interesting questions of things that are still being sort of talked about when we look at the, the history of of egypt um but yeah so where abdul takes him though this guy just takes him back in time Quote, Abdul led us among such wonders as we had only, as before only read and dreamed of. Old Cairo is itself a storybook in a dream. Labyrinths of narrow alleys, redundant of aromatic secrets. Aberesque balconies and orioles nearly meeting above the cobbled streets. Maelstroms of oriental traffic with strange cries, cracking whips, rattling carts, jingling money and brain donkeys. Kaleidoscopes of polychrome robes, veils, turbans and tarbushes. Water carries and dervishes, dogs and cats, soothsayers and barbers, and all over the whining of blind beggars crouched in alcoves and the sonorous chanting of muzins from minarets limbed delicately against the sky of a deep, unchanging blue. Wonderful stuff. Um, you know, when this same kind of scenes are, are put in New York, they become scenes of horror for Lovecraft, like in the horror of Red Hook uh, or, or other stories. It's But here... It, it has a different feel of this mystery and we kind of are drawn into the the kind of the surrealism of it all um, as our as our narrators experience it and I wonder just you know I kind of envy maybe the tourists of that time who were kind of being exposed to things that maybe they only knew through books they didn't see pictures of that much or you know they couldn't see videos of it now you can just go on YouTube and, and see a lot of these stuff if you want and it, it becomes kind of more banal when that happens but to, you know, the way it's presented here is really a deeper and deeper mystery and fascination and, and foreignness and exoticism. Yeah, it's a bit of Orientalism, but whatever. Let's, let's not get too worked up over that. It's just uh, the kind of the going back in time feel of this story is really a great part of it. And then we get uh, beyond that, beyond a certain level to get even deeper into the past, you have to go into the architecture. And here's where Lovecraft, of course, excels in talking about architecture, whether it's the the gambrel roofs of New England, or the, the Puritan architecture of Kingsport, um, or the degraded kind of post-industrial landscape of Innsmouth. Here we have the ancient Egyptian architecture being 
the place that where the past lives on and that's kind of the next thing they see so they're going back even farther into time uh, really great a series of scenes just really pulling the character pulling the inner backwards into time until, until ultimately they get as far back as you can go which is to to Giza to the the pyramids and the Sphinx um, but we never kind of forget this modern ancient contrast being played with uh, as they approach the Sphinx, quote, the road as we transversed on our camels that morning curved sharply past the wooden police quarters, post office, drugstores, and shops on the left, and plunged south and east into a complete bend that scaled the rock plateau and brought us face to face with the desert under the lee of the Great Pyramid. Past Cyclopean masonry we rode, rounding the eastern face and looking down ahead into the valley of minor pyramids beyond which the eternal Nile glistened in the east and the eternal desert shimmered to the west. Very close loomed the three great pyramids, the greatest devoid of outer casings and shrewing the, its bulk of great stones, but the other three painting here and there the neat finished coverings which had made them smooth and finished in their day. That's essentially how they still look now, right? Um, I've never been there, but of course I've just seen I've just seen the pictures too, but that that you know is still essentially how they look. But um, you know, there's enough there of how. It would have looked that you can imagine. Um, now, the theory of the Sphinx that I think was around at that time um, was that it's supposed to be a representation of, of Kefren, or at least Kefren is how it's spelled here. I think there's other spellings of this, but this was the, the pharaoh that built like some of the great pyramids at Giza. So, the, I mean, the greater pyramids are farther back in Egyptian history, right? And more in the New Kingdom, they built smaller tombs and, and things for the for the pharaohs as i recall anyways but these go really way very far back um and I, I think that's still the majority thesis that it's representing kefren i know there's like fringe theses out there that it's even older or that you know it used to be a different thing and then they carved a face over it maybe you know or always the alien thesis out there right but uh, this story kind of goes with the kefren thesis that this is a representation of that that pharaoh now, as we get closer to the um, kidnapping scene, we get drawn more and more into this past, into this architecture, and he goes on for pages and pages going into this, but he starts to bring in magic into it, which is great because Houdini, of course, it was a magician, someone who debunked like Frin, like huckster magic, magical uh, theories. But here he just sort of runs with it, right? Because it's, it's fiction. Um, quote, it gradually dawned on me that the elder magic of Egypt did not depart without leaving traces, and that fragments of a strange secret lore and priestly cult practices have survived stereotypically among the Falahin, to such an extent that the prowess of strange Hawaii or magician is resented and disputed. I thought of how much my howl voice guide Abdul Reyes looked like an old Egyptian priest or pharaoh or smiling sphinx and wondered. End quote. I mean, this is another great Lovecraftian moment where you have the realization that the ancient traditions that the rest of the world has forgotten or condemned to books lives on among you know, working people of some sort. I mean, there's, I, I say that there's not, there is sort of a class dimension in the story. It may not be on the surface. It's in the subtext. But in Lovecraft's work, we usually have a class dimension to the practitioners of, of traditions. There's exceptions. There's uh, subtleties to it, but largely it's, uh, you know, the, the intellectuals and the common people. And there, there's always kind of a class dimension between those two groups, at least in Lovecraft's day. 
now I don't know with all the adjunct professors out there we're getting you know intellectuals are becoming more more proletarianized we'll see what that's going to mean for you know intellectual participation in social movements um, we'll see. I mean historically when you see like the intellectuals become fully alienated no longer can their interests be a path to fame and, and success they start to you know they they start to turn on the regime and i think we can't understand how much intellectuals you know serve even when they don't think they are but serve as sort of guards to the the regime a, a, a stop on the radicalism of, of of popular movements anyways that's a big aside it's not really in the story at all so anyways he gets kidnapped at one point there's there's kind of a little drama here about um about like a debt that's going to be settled by a fist fight on top of the Great Pyramids, but it's all a ruse to to essentially kidnap him. And then he's finally kidnapped, um, and and he wakes up under the pyramids. So that's that's the whole first part of the story. The I think the story is just in two parts. And the first part, I think the first part's better in a way because I just love the the kind of going back in time the extended descriptions of the scenery, the wonder at this, the oddness of the different people he runs into and the different uh, street scenes, and then the, the entrance into Giza. It's all really, really well done. I, I love it. And it's uh, something I think we don't experience as much anymore because so much of the world is known. And you know, we, where do you go for the, the truly unknown and the truly bizarre? Uh, even when that exists, you can always just Google it and, and see a picture of it. And experience it from home you don't have to go there to see that anymore and the good of that is it's not bound by those who can afford to go but you know it, it kind of you do lose that sort of experience and the wonder a little bit so the second part of the story opens up with dreams and so here the story gets really ambiguous because we're essentially told by houdini our narrator that this is all a dream and nothing in the second half of the story should be taken seriously at all it all should just be because it's too preposterous to believe. It's too beyond the realm of possibility. He basically says, "There's no way this really happens. What I what I'm telling you is just what I experienced and what I remember, but you know, it's probably a, a dream." Quote: The precise nature of these dreams was very clear while I was experiencing them, but because blurred in my recollection almost immediately afterwards, it was soon reduced to the merest outline of terrible events, real or imaginary which followed i dreamed that i was in the grasp of a great and horrible paw a hairy yellow five-clawed paw which had reached out of the earth to crush and engulf me and when i stopped to reflect what that paw was it seemed to me that it was egypt Unquote. now this is foreshadowing the climax of the story which is about a, a five-headed paw which is like a monster that seems to have five heads but actually it's just the five fingers of the paw of a much greater creature um, but you start out with this dream. This dream is is here. And in these dreams, he not only foreshadows the paw, he has this vision of Abdul Reis, his guide, as Kefren, as this pharaoh. And so it's, there's a payoff for that kind of gut feeling that, that uh, Houdini has that this guy, is, there's something off about him and he looks a little bit like, like a pharaoh. Now, eventually he wakes, and then it's all about how do we escape. And, and there's a really fun scene here where Houdini gets to say, wow, they tied me up, but 
you know, this was child's play for someone like me. I know all the techniques on how to escape. And, and you know, he, he does. Obviously, he's able to escape from that. Um, there is some this other moment, though, where these piles of hemp and rope fall on him and complicate his, his escape. But eventually he's able to escape. And um, and then it's about how to get out of the, the pyramids he's in. But first he's going to explore and we're going to get kind of a tour through these uh, tunnels, these, these areas. He's not quite sure where he is, obviously. Is he under the Sphinx? Is he in one of the pyramids? It's not quite clear because there's a discontinuity of time from the kidnapping. So he doesn't know how far to go. And now he gets to kind of, now he doesn't know how far he has to go to kind of reach his ends. So there's a mystery there. Like how far away does he have to travel? How deep is he under the earth? That's all sort of unknown. Um, but this allows him to kind of meditate on Egyptology, to meditate on what he read before. And then there we get what I think is really a laugh out line where he says like, if only I hadn't read so much before coming to Egypt, I, you know, I could handle this with much more sanity or something. Quote, if only I had not read so much Egyptology before coming to this island or this land, sorry, before coming to this land, which is the fountain of all darkness and terror. This second spell of fainting filled my sleeping mind anew with shivering realization of the country and its archaic secrets. And through some damnable chances, my dreams turned to the ancient notions of the dead and their sojournings in soul and body behind, beyond those mysterious tombs, which were more houses than graves. I recalled in dream shapes which is well that I do not remember, the peculiar and elaborate construction of Egyptian sepulchres and the exceeding, exceedingly singular and terrific doctrines which determine their construction. Um, and he meditates also, though, on like Egyptian religion, which I suppose he got from reading all that Egyptology, um, you know, about Osiris and Ka and, and, and the life principle and, and all the different Egyptian gods are, are mentioned at various times in the story. Um, so I'm not going to get into the details of his escape from there, but it's all wonderfully described of his, his kind of outerworldliness in these, in these catacombs under these pyramids, this experience, it's really, really kind of believable. I don't know what Lovecraft had about what's under there. I think this is probably just all from his imagination. Um, but it gets, here's the weird part. Here's where the story gets weird at the climax of it is uh, and here's where he, he again tells us, he says, this is probably not real. This could not have happened. Quote, I have digressed from my connected narrative. There's actually this long aside where he talks about Kefron. He talks about later investigations he had where he tried to dig up some truth about this. And he says, this was all to just delay telling you this horrible thing I saw. Quote, I have digressed, digressed from my connected narrative, perhaps in the vain hope of evading the telling of that final incident. That incident, which of all is most certainly a hallucination. But I promise to relate it, and I do not break promises. When I recovered, or seemed to recover my senses after that fall down the black stone stairs, I was quite alone and in darkness as before. All right, so what does he first see? Well, the first thing he hears is music, ancient music, kind of a rhythmic piping, droning, rattling, and beating. So we don't really, I guess we really don't know what Egyptian music sounded like. Maybe we have some of their instruments. But just kind of speculation, I suppose. If that's what is trying to be recreated here, I don't know. But he hears various sounds and the volume increases. And it turns out it's not so much instruments as it is a procession of mummies of various types. Uh, animal mummies, mummies of without heads, without bodies, mummies with heads of creatures. 
I think there's like hippopotami heads there and things like that. It's really kind of creepy, weird stuff. Um, yeah, he doesn't. He actually avoids describing these very in a very detailed way, but he does say, "Heaven take it away! Hippopotami should not have human hands and carry torches. Men should not have the heads of crocodiles." Um, but they're all like these ancient mummies. And he's he, another thing. He's in this room that's huge. He says like the Eiffel Tower would be tiny in this vast room. It, it actually reminds me a little bit of the final um, grotto in Rats in the Wall. Now, what is this procession doing? Well, he sees that they're basically kind of worshiping some something, worshiping some some god, and he sees this hole that they gather around and worship in front of. Quote, they were worshiping before a great black foiter belching aperture, which reached up almost out of sight, and which I could see was flanked at right angles by two giant staircases whose ends were far away in shadow. One of these was indubitably the staircase I'd fallen down. Now, the staircases provide him a means to try to escape, so he starts to go up there. Um, but on his way, he gets a glimpse of, of the monster. Um, quote, it was a large, perhaps as good-sized hippopotamus, but very curiously shaped. It seemed to have no neck but five separately shaggy heads springing in a row from a roughly cylindrical trunk. The first very small, the second good-sized, the third and fourth equal, and largest of all, the fifth rather small, though not so small as the first. And it emerges. The rest of the monster emerges. And we don't get a description of it because our narrator is too terrified. But he does escape, obviously. Houdini escapes. Uh, how could it be otherwise? I guess he did die in one of his escape attempts. But, you know, he wasn't dead when the story was written. So he has to escape to, to tell the tale anyways. Um, and it's only in the final line of, lines of the story that we're told that this was actually just the foot, the paw of a greater monster, which is it's highly suggested that this is the monster that's supposed to be the Sphinx. Quote, what a huge and loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carved to represent. It's just a question. There's a question mark at the end of it, but this, you know, the suggestion is that this monster is what the Sphinx originally was, was um, representing, but it, and it's still alive under the pyramids in a way. So that's the more or less what happens in Under the Pyramids. Uh, I may be winning it a little quickly, um, but there's a lot of detail here. It's really thick with atmosphere, um, both the scenery of, of like Cairo, modern Cairo, kind of Arab Cairo, and then you get back into kind of ancient Egypt. And you get a connection between the modern and the present through this guide whose loyalties are very, very uncertain and, and dubious. He seems to be part of this. He seems to be, he seems to be one in the know in, su in some way, whether... This is a dream or not. I guess it's left ambiguous, but he's certainly in on the conspiracy to kidnap him. But the um, this kind of path to time, I think that's really well done here. And then once he's in the tomb, you have this kind of surreal description where it's not clear what's a dream and what's real. And it's all very fuzzy and ambiguous. And finally, you get the rev revelation that, yes, there's something still alive down there and it's still being worshipped by mummies. Um, there's still like an afterlife. It's not quite the afterlife that the Egyptians imagined, I think. I think it's quite far from that, but it's still pretty fun. I love this story. I, I think it's a great one. Um, so, I don't know. One more to say. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. I, I'm 
to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of, I've been doing a lot of these stories and I'm, I'm kind of eager to get into something new. So that's why this episode will be a little bit shorter than maybe some others. A little less line by line analysis. For me, that's good. Um, I'm really looking forward to what's coming up next. So I don't have a quite it all laid out. I think definitely we're going to look at volume two. First, we're going to look at volume two of Lovecraft Selected Letters. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with that collection, but it's what we have and it's available. So um, there are, of course, other collections of his writings, usually, you know, with specific other correspondence. Um, I have the Robert E. Howard ones and the Selected Letters. Um, so at least volumes two, three, and four. I don't have volume five or one. I already talked about volume one in rough outline. But now we can kind of get deeper into the letters. So these letters cover 1925 to, I want to say 1929, maybe not all of 1929. There's about 180 of them. So I think I'm going to take about nine episodes or maybe 10 episodes to kind of dissect them. Some are, some are quite long. The early ones are quite short because when he was in New York, he was kind of distracted. Didn't write the long letters, the long sprawling letters we know he wrote. Those, when he gets back to Providence, his letters kind of extend. So I might have to maybe do episodes where I look at just a handful of them. But I'm looking at 15 or 20 letters maybe per episode. See how that goes. Um, then we have to look at supernatural horror literature. Look at uh, poems. Pretty much anything nonfiction or poetry written by Lovecraft that I can get my hands on between 1925 and 1929 or so. When that's done, we'll come back to the stories written in the, the early 1930s. No, sorry, we'll come to the stories written in the late 1920s because we still haven't looked at Call of Cthulhu, Horror at Red Hook, and all that. So this is this will be looking at his writings that come after all the stories we've looked at, essentially. So, yeah, that's what's coming up next. So I had a lot of fun talking about all these stories. Uh, there's been a lot of them. Uh, I think over like 30 or so if you include the revisions. But it's time to move on. So next episode will be... Uh, looking at Lovecraft's life in New York. So um, I don't quite know how I'll do that yet. Maybe I think every letter in the selected letters is there for a reason. They're there because they're saying important things, but they don't always say things I'm particularly interested in, you know, like his clothes being stolen or something, you know, but his circle of friends, some people are more interested in that than I am. I think it's important to talk about a little bit, but that's, that's a lot of that in those, those letters. But anyways, we'll see. I'll see what's important. I've already started reading them. Had a lot of fun getting into them. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But if you have your own your own thoughts about under the pyramids, let me know. I sure there's a lot I skipped over. I, I kind of did a, a briefer summary of the story, but um, that's fine. I think uh, you can fill in if there's anything important I missed. So uh, that's it. Read under the pyramids if you haven't read it. It's it's a good one to read. Um, and I'll see you next time. Contact me if you have anything to, to add. See you then.